This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by the Wright Center for Women's Health, providing personalized luxury health care. Hello and welcome to Dana Being Dana. That's me and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is about all different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together, and living life intentionally. Life events such as the holidays and anniversaries often trigger anxiety and depression for many people. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older, or 18.1% of the population every year. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, major depressive disorder affecting approximately 17.3 million American adults in a given year. Nearly 50% of all people diagnosed with depression are also diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Here with me are my friends Tracy, Adam, and Jessica. How are you all? Good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me to have this conversation. Adam, you're a therapist, and you specialize in, in talking and treating, talking to and treating patients with anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. right? Correct. So, what does anxiety look like? Let's start with that. And what are the symptoms? So. First of all, there's a couple of different types of anxiety, like as people would typically refer to in a clinical setting. Um, one would be social anxiety, one would be generalized anxiety, one would be phobias, and then another one would be panic disorders. And they all have a lot in common. Um, starting with social, and I guess I could um, bundle and generalize as well, it's essentially um, a situation where you have, I want to say, an irrational emotional reaction to a life event where you actually think that your life hangs in the balance and that there is a massive amount of embarrassment that could be waiting for you if you were to go through with that certain thing. Um, social anxiety is very much about that. Uh, it's about feeling accepted by other people. It's about feeling comfortable being self. Um, and in a major way, the individual is really trying to protect who they are in terms of what do other people want to see and trying to fit in with them. And so it invokes a fight or flight response. And that is pretty consistent across the board with all types of anxieties. Panic disorder and social anxiety go very much hand in hand. Um, as emotions become heightened, it can lead to panic. I mean, shortness of breath, so if we're talking about symptoms, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, sweating. Um, if we're talking about social anxiety, avoidance of those social situations, um, coming up basically at a loss for words when trying to communicate with other people. Um, essentially, we're multitasking in those situations. We're trying to give people what they want to be accepted, and then at the same time, we're trying to figure out, are they receiving what we're trying to give them? You talked about um, life events, mm -hmm. um, Adam, when it comes to anxiety. Tracy, you've experienced some life events that have triggered anxiety for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes. One of the biggest life experiences for me was when I was 14 and I lost my mother suddenly to a brain, uh, cerebral brain hemorrhage. And that the lack of being able to cope with that loss threw me into a world of anxiety that I wasn't aware of. So I would do things like uh, try to spend more money. Uh, I wasn't able to sleep. I did have some panic attacks. Um, and over the years, I really didn't, the, the lack of grief was inhibited into that uh, anxiety. So for me, I, as I got older, I started shopping more, spending more money, then my thoughts started to ruminate, whereas, you know, the anxiety and the worry, everything that I could not control became more anxiety for me. Losing I, somebody so close to you mm -hmm. 
so suddenly, so unexpectedly, mm -hmm. keeps you focused on the future. What's going to happen next? Will somebody else mm -hmm. um, die suddenly or, or not knowing what's unexpected? That's what anxiety is, is mm -hmm. the fear of the future mm -hmm. or the fear of, of what's unexpected. And then what? Well, you know, with that, what you just said with the fear of the future is the fact that you can't change anything that you thought you could change. So the death of my mother, not being able to change that situation to make it different, probably uh, subconsciously started a lot of my anxiety and just carried with me through throughout my life. And then as I've gotten older, I learned to manage it. Um, but I recognize it. And then as my when I got married and my husband got sick and then it kind of started again because once again I couldn't control that situation. So the anxiety just built up, but I also realized it a lot more as I got older than I, I did when I was a teenager. So let's talk about depression. Adam, what are the symptoms of depression? Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, so depression, so first of all I can give you like not necessarily symptoms, but like descriptors, I guess, of what to look for. Um, lack of motivation, um, feeling helpless, expecting that the situation today that they are in, um, in the dark place that they may be in, is going to continue for the rest of their life. Um, in general despair, isolation would be a, a handful of others. And if we're talking about specific things to look for in an individual, in addition to those, it would be appetite, it would be like a significant decrease, it would be sleep, um, decreased energy um, and motivation to do things, like I said before, um, challenges with focus, and then even to the point with you know suicidal thoughts or contemplating you know the pain that I'm having today with what I have to deal with would be so much easier if I did not exist. And so a lot of people will say this; they don't really. There's not an intent to do something to harm themselves, but the idea is my pain is so great that I would almost do anything to have it go away. It's insurmountable. Correct. Yeah. Jessica, how old were you when you experienced your first depression episode? So the first time I could ever remember being depressed, I was eight, and it, it took me by surprise because I had a pretty happy childhood, so life revolved around family. I had a lot of cousins. You were always doing stuff as a family. And I remember one day we were going to school, and I just had this like aching emptiness within me, and I was eight years old, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? We're going to, like go to school, work, live 70 years, and die? I, I was like, is, is, is this meaningless? You know, <laughs> I, I felt like this, like really this despair. It was really deep and profound. And then it lasted for like a few moments, and then it was gone. And that's what I remember. But according to my mom, she says that when I was three and my grandparents they would go away for the winter because it's freezing in Chicago. I, I didn't understand that they were just going to be gone temporarily. And she says that I didn't eat or speak for three weeks. Wow, at three years old. At three years old, yeah. And she said she took me to the pediatrician and the pediatrician mm. like got me to drink water and begged me to drink water. And she, you know, she said she's upset and it didn't really know much about you know, that kind of stuff in the 80s. Right. So she was just like, she's upset. And I think my mom took me to see Big Bird or something. And she mm -hmm. said I had no reaction to Sesame Street wow. and Big Bird. Missing your, missing your grandparents. Yeah. Are men and women impacted differently when it comes to anxiety or depression? I'm going to stick to the biological answer for that one and the way that the brains are made up and the difference between the female brain and the male brain. Um, 
actually, believe it or not, and there's statistics that support this, um, there's a lot of research behind it. Um, women are, unfortunately, more susceptible to both anxiety and depression in comparison to men. Um, there's a handful of reasons, and some of them are speculative, um, and some of them are actually scientifically proven. Um, the first one is the fight or flight response that we get when we're in an uncomfortable and in an anxious situation is actually the onset of it is earlier for the female, and it sticks around longer. Um, the second is the amount of serotonin in the brain, and this is research that's still ongoing, might be lower in females than it is for males. And this is also known as like the happiness chemical. Um, it's the Less one that, happiness. Well, I don't want to go that to that, you know. Maybe like, these men are stressing us out. It, and you know what, like, oh man, here we go. See, this is why I was going to tread lightly and stick to biology, but it still went there. There you go, here we go. This it's, we went. It still went there. Um, but you know, look, you also have um, the female brain develops more rapidly than the male brain. Um, during that period, you know, I would say females, if we're talking about adolescence, there's a lot happening during that period of life with environments and environments changing. Um, that's one of the reasons depression and anxiety, I guess two of them, that they are higher is, I mean, serotonin, we need. Right. Um, and so when we talk about medication later, that's, that's kind of part of it. Um, but it's something that, yeah, there is a factor. And then seeking treatment's a whole other story. You know, everybody experiences some form of anxiety or depression mm -hmm. throughout their life. You know, life happens. Mm -hmm. um, you apply to college, you have anxiety, you have a first date, uh, new job. There's so many different things in life that trigger anxiety and depression. When you're anticipating good news, there's mm -hmm. a, and there is anxiety surrounding that. Will she say yes to my proposal? You're on your wedding date. You know, will that happen? Um, and there's also, you know, things that trigger depression. Mm -hmm. uh, not getting into that first choice being stood up at your wedding, uh, breaking up with a friend or a loved one or losing somebody. When does the line cross between normal depression and anxiety and abnormal depression and anxiety? And did either of you know when you experienced those in your own life that, that things had crossed a certain line? Well, I would say, I mean, as a young teenager, you don't recognize that anxiety is anxiety. I think as I've gotten older, well, even through my 20s, I didn't really start recognizing the anxiety until I was probably early 30s just because I started counseling at that time. And then I was diagnosed with OCD and I had to go on Zoloft and a lot of that allowed me to recognize that I did have an issue with anxiety which kind of created other problems for me. So I think now that I'm, you know, 50, I've gotten older, I, I know when I'm about to be in an anxious mode compared to just uh, the basic worry. Um, I'll lose sleep, you know, I'll have the palp heart palpitations, I'll have ruminating thoughts, I'll just, you know, play some, uh, a scenario over and over and over again in my brain and it, I'll, I'll at some point decide, okay, I have to stop doing this and that's when I have to recognize that the anxiety is controlling me. Well, for me, so, I was born with bipolar disorder and I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar 2 until I was 18, but that's actually kind of early compared to some people can go, you know, decades. But I didn't, you don't know that something isn't what everybody else experiences, right? So like when I was, the first moment I ever got depressed that I remember when I was eight, so they were just really brief moments in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a teenager, you know, I had no vocabulary, like you were saying. How would you know that's exact? How would 
how would I know what that's depression? You know, how do I know that? How do I know that not other ten-year-olds worry about the meaning of life? I don't know that. Mm -hmm. and, and then when I was a teenager, those moments were, you know, I was a highly motivated person. All of a sudden, I feel like no motivation, like what you were talking about. And I'd have to force myself. I'd go through crying spells, and especially in the winter. And then alternately, I'd just be genuinely happy and stable for no reason at all, or what I now know is hypomania, it would take me like five, six hours to go to sleep. And I was very artistic, and I didn't know it wasn't normal for people to take five, six hours to go mm -hmm. to sleep until I went to college. And then I saw people went to sleep when they wanted to sleep. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is like a revelation. People don't, not everybody. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'd asked my parents for help my senior year of high school, and I only knew the word depression. Like, I didn't know any other mental health lingo. And they'd asked our pastor at the time for help, not because he was a pastor, but because he also happened to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't a psychiatrist, you know? And so that's something people should keep in mind. Just because somebody's a doctor doesn't mean they have the answers. And so he's like, oh, this is just teenage angst. This will go away. And then when I was a freshman in college, I lost a friend of mine who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder to suicide. And so I, it, like, it was just like an epiphany, like a light bulb went on in my head. That, we had a lot of the same symptoms, and she understood me, and I researched the illness, and I saw the campus mental health center, which is where they, di they diagnosed me. Adam, when do you know when you're dealing with clients, when uh, someone is... They've kind of crossed the line between. Correct. So, you know, first of all, I think anxiety actually, like, the normal manageable piece of anxiety is actually something that serves us well. Um, it, it helps us prepare. Let's say we've got an exam coming up. Um, it helps us prepare for it. We're not going to come into it blind because we're anxious about how we're going to perform, assuming we care. Um, you know, whether it's you know proposal, we want to do it right. Um, I don't know, just a host of different things that anxiety actually makes make sure that we're going to deliver what we would like to. Um, now, when it gets excessive, is when it starts to impact truly the quality of life that we're having. We don't engage in the activities that we really enjoy. It affects how much we socialize. It affects how we perform at work or at school. It impacts the outlook on life. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's a really great point of, you know, what is this, you know, anxiety, like the definition of it. And I think most people, they feel, uh, you know, many people feel it, but they don't quite know what it is and they accept that this is my normal. This is part of who I am. And if you have social anxiety, going and talking to somebody uh -huh. is one of the most like excruciating painful thoughts that they could possibly have. Well, I'm thrilled that you guys are talking to me. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. talking about anxiety and depression and how common they are, what's really important to understand is that you are not alone if you're experiencing some of these symptoms. Let's talk about environment. How does your environment contribute to anxiety or depression? Well, for me, I think um, growing up having a lack of support was very instrumental in my anxiety. Um, I think there was not a good support system when my mother died, so I was pretty much left on my own to do what I wanted to do. Um, and I, my father did eventually take me to counseling, but at that time, being a rebellious teenager, I didn't think I needed it. Mm -hmm. So I think that was his way of showing his support. 
but I didn't get any real emotional uh, support and I just pretty much felt like I was alone. Um, and I think that environment had, a, had a, a lot to do with my lack of coping with the anxiety earlier on in my life compared to waiting until I was, you know, late 20s and my early 30s. Could having parents who suffer from anxiety and depression influence someone growing up in that household? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this goes back to the nature versus nurture argument. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in a, in a big way, it's both. Um, you know, on the nurture side of things, like if you do have a parent that's tremendously anxious, um, about, especially about certain things, like let's say it's social and they're avoiding all these social situations because it makes them uncomfortable, the kid's going to watch this and going to think, we're a young adult, and going to think like, okay, like these are scary situations. That's the new normal. This is the new normal. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you, you think about like, okay, fight or flight response and resilience, also we're learning that almost indirectly. And so, I mean, as, as younger people, we are watching the environment that we're in, especially as we're so impressionable and our brain's developing, and we internalize a lot of that stuff and carry it with us for quite some time without even knowing where we got it and how it's there and why it's there and how we get rid of it. Would you say anxiety and depression are hereditary? It's a really good question because actually I have a friend who is scared to death of having friends because he believes it's almost exclusively hereditary. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of evidence to prove like yes, genetics do play a role, but also so does brain chemistry, so does personality, so does again the environment that you grow up in um, and various life events that have affected you over time. So. I mean, just a host, host of different reasons, and you know, obviously it can be genetic um, in a major way, but certainly influenced and even made worse um, based on the environments that we could be in and the life events that we experience. Speaking of environments, I think anxiety and depression are on the rise in our society. It could be that pe more people are being diagnosed, mm -hmm. but I also think it could be the environment when it comes to technology. How does technology contribute to depression and or anxiety? Well, I really feel like we need that human interaction. And so, uh, you know, the average person spends two hours, 22 minutes a day on social media. Wow. That's like, that's a huge chunk of your life spent on your phone. And I feel like a lot of young people, so I coach high school debate. And so I knew a world before Facebook. Now some mm. of these people, they never knew a world before Facebook. And so it's like, we're on, but are we connected? Mm -hmm. You know, we need that, that, that connection. So. It's like, are you constantly on but not connected to other people? And, and there are people who do find genuine connection in social media, so I'm not saying that it's not possible, but I think if you're not conscious while you're doing it, you can fall into that trap. What is social media depression? I don't know that from a diagnosis perspective that there's actually a word that, but um, I would say like, it's actually interesting. I see people social media like usually there's something already there okay um, so social media like obviously we go there and sometimes we're looking for validation mm -hmm. and we're not getting it we often see how other people are living mm -hmm. and they're only posting the great things you know that they've done you know over the course of you know the week the day whatever it is and so we're not computing never the negative yeah. stuff yeah we're not computing right. that they have bad moments right. they're just not posting them yeah and it's you know the person's comparing like why don't I have a, a life like this um, number one and then you know if we're not just talking about Facebook it's the idea of being excluded now um, is a major piece especially among young people where you can literally eviscerate somebody's, you know, status socially. Hmm. Click with a click. Yeah, 
And I tell people, because I've had friends who felt like, oh, I'm behind the curve because they're, they're logged on to Facebook and everything's like, great. And I said, Facebook is like, it's like the greatest hits of a person's life. So most people are going to share the greatest things mm -hmm. that ever happened in their life on Facebook, but they're going to hide the other stuff. And so I say, just take it with a grain of salt. Don't ever compare yourself on your worst day to someone else on their best day. Mm -hmm. There's always a story behind yeah, all the glory. Yeah. Right. So we've talked about all of these symptoms of anxiety and depression. If you're predisposed to anxiety and depression, what can you do to keep the symptoms at bay? How, is, how are these treated? I would say one of the biggest ones, uh, like from the onset, is knowing that you need to cope. Like you may need to cope. So acknowledging. And, yes, it starts with the emotional awareness mm -hmm. um, that you know one. This is this is something that I am dealing with. This is something that I carry around, and not ignoring it, but being aware of it when it comes, so that we can do something about it. Um, you know, I often, often recommend that you know the individual is taking care of themselves and doing things that they enjoy. Um, you know, exercise, diet, ap you know, eating right, all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, like doing things that they find fulfilling, and I think that's very much part of self-care. Um, I do think therapy is a part of it. I do think medication mm -hmm. could potentially be a part of it. It depends on the individual. So it can be a combination of several different things. Mm -hmm. Like you said, exercise, mm -hmm. diet, mm -hmm. therapy, mm -hmm. medication, mm -hmm. sleep. Mm -hmm. I've heard spiritual grounding. Mm -hmm. Support, for sure. Definitely. The support. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel like everybody should know their top five. So if you're predisposed to so someone with bipolar, I'm watching out for depression. I know what my top five are because I use mood tracker apps, and there, there's mm -hmm. like mental health apps that can help you with there's anxiety or depression mm -hmm. or bipolar. And so from using the apps, I learned what triggers depression, but also how to like proactively handle. So like my top five things, if I start to see I'm depressed on my app, it's like exercise, which you mentioned shower, mm -hmm. light therapy, staring at a box mm -hmm. of light, literally that. And I listen to, it's related to faith, but like black gospel music, just specifically that genre. Yes, honey. <laughs> Amen. And then, and then watch Days of Our Lives. So this is my top five, you know, it's sort of shower to, to all the way around. Like, you got to know yourself because yeah. if, you, if you're not like intentional about the coping mechanisms, you know, it, it can slip away from you. It's true. To yeah. each his own. Because for me, I listen to all kinds of music when I'm feeling depressed or sad, even when I'm happy. Mm -hmm. um, I think the support is important. I think talking to a therapist, I, I talked to a therapist when I lost my dad, when I got divorced, I think it's important just to even have friends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just getting it out and just that communication, which is so, so important. So what are some healthy coping mechanisms versus unhealthy coping mechanisms? Well, for me, it's changing a thought when I realize it's a negative thought. And I think that has been something that takes a lot of practice, but it is a great way to try to change how I think about things so I don't get anxious. Um, walking, again, exercise, walking helps me clear my mind. So that goes hand in hand with the change in my thoughts. So for me, exercise? those are great coping things that I do. Um, I haven't gotten to the exercise part as much as I need to be, but I, I mean, you know, fully exercising outside of walking, but I think to begin a process of starting slow if you have to, to kind of work your way up mm -hmm. and find what works best for you because a lot of times exercise for some people may not be the best way yeah. to cope, but you kind of have to develop your own top five to try out error. what works. Yeah, you do. The trial so. and error. Um, let's talk a little bit about therapy because I think there's a lot of people who don't feel like they have someone that they can talk to mm -hmm. and trust. Even people who are seemingly popular, or have a lot of friends, either mm -hmm. on social media or otherwise, 
at the end of the day, often feel alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about therapy. Adam, you're a therapist. How do you know when, when and you guys may have seen therapists in your time, mm -hmm. how do you know when a therapist is a good match? Or, or what advice do you have for somebody in finding a therapist? One way that therapy helped me in the past was she helped me identify the cognitive distortions I was most prone to. So these are like, these are patterns of thinking that can, they seem, they're so part of us. It's hard to know that we're trapped in them. So like black and white thinking, you know, I would tell my, I remember one time I told my therapist, I said, I want to exercise because exercise has helped me when I'm depressed, but I'm too, too depressed to do 30 minutes mm -hmm. of exercise. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it, but I want to exercise so I could get out of the depression. And she said to me, you know, because I was steeped in black and white thinking, it was all or nothing. And she's like, you don't have to do 30 minutes. You just try to do 10 minutes. And so then after that, I was aiming for 10 minutes and 10 became 20 and 30. And that has really helped me. For me, it was important to find a therapist who was of similar demographics. So I wanted a female, I wanted an African-American female. Um, so, and I'm currently in therapy, so it works for me to have her because number one, she's given me assignments to complete that work well with my anxiety and other things. And then she calls me out on some things that I don't recognize for myself as we talk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important for me because I can talk and talk and talk through a therapy session, but she needs to stop me and tell me what she's hearing and what she wants me to focus on and that works for me is it a quick fix adam do you clients come in and out i mean i know you're good <laughs> but thank you for the vote of confidence i appreciate that you're welcome uh yeah i'll give you your tip after the show um but you know one of the things that i'll tell you know individuals or you know or parents of of young people that that come in and are expecting a quick fix it's Usually I'll say, how long is, have you or this individual been dealing with this challenge? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and usually the answer is, you know, like I would say most people wait till the 30s to really get mm -hmm. help. Um, I, I don't know if that was one of the statistics, but it is one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they wait until the 30s years. to get help. Mm -hmm. And so it's how can we possibly expect from eight sessions, like even 12, like, <laughs> and even to a more significant level, how we're going to resolve these deeply rooted challenges in such a short period of time? It's just not realistic. Um, it's not a therapist dragging you along. It's they're trying to meet you where you're at, and that's where you're at. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think it takes a while to unpack that stuff. Oh my gosh, but and that, com that person feel comfortable yeah. and trusting um, for that rapport to be built. And in certain cases, um, if let's say a client of mine is okay with it, being able to be direct and hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference in people who? jump in with and are receptive to therapy, mm -hmm. really making significant changes in their lives, a, accepting feedback, being mm -hmm. called out and responding to that in a positive way. Do you see that change their, their quality of life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it happens so much quicker. Um, one of the mm -hmm. things that impedes the progress of therapy in a major way is how, much is, how invested is that person really in their own change? Um, are they ready to work hard? Because it's not going to be comfortable. And one of the things I tell people is, you're, we're going to have to go to some places that are not comfortable for you. I can assure you they're going to be productive. Um, are you ready for that? And so some people, you know, I would say I get a lot of yeses. And then some people, I still need some time to make sure, like, this is really what I want to do and I want to fight the battle. Are you ready to do the work? Yeah. What signs of anxiety and depression should you look for in family or friends? At the end of the day, we want to help people and I want people to um, know what to look out for. I mean, for me, it's looking for a, a, an aberration in behavior or an abrupt change. So mm -hmm. 
Well, for example, being a coach, if I have a student who, I've had this happen a few times, they're doing really well in school, they're getting straight A's, top of the class, mm -hmm. and then they start getting D's mm -hmm. or not showing up. Usually it's a mental health problem, like 99.9% .9 of the time. It's just never been somebody was like, I just decided to change my whole personality mm -hmm. overnight. Or if like, I have a friend who's very sociable and then they don't want to go out. They don't want to interact with people. They're not picking up the phone, they're isolating. And then, you know, I think it's just knowing a person mm -hmm. before you can notice the changes. Not being afraid to say something, mm -hmm. yeah. speaking mm -hmm. up. For me, I noticed that my daughter, uh, uh, had some anxiety and maybe this goes back to the whole hereditary thing but I think for me I noticed that she was starting to, her friendships were changing mm -hmm. and I could tell she was being bothered by that and I would ask her certain things she would be very vague so she wasn't very informative to me but I noticed the change in how she responded when I asked about it and I did put her in therapy for that reason good you yeah. took action. That's I really did. Good. That's yeah. good. Good. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you all for joining me for this important discussion. I want to try to help as many people as we can. So I thank you for your time. Many people live in fear of the stigma or judgment around anxiety and depression. And that is no way to live. Everyone needs support from time to time to manage and process life events, especially those that are unexpected. You owe it to yourself and those you love to get the support that you need to fully walk in your purpose and live your best life. Hopefully you have been entertained, if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert, nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana, being Dana. See you next time. <laughs>